This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Pentagon has been talking about its vision for joint all-domain command and control for years now. Well, now there's a plan to make it real. The formal implementation plan is still classified. But defense officials say they're now ready to get to work on JADC-2's five separate lines of effort and funding requests to start building discrete elements of the architecture. They'll make their first appearance in next year's budget. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has the latest. DoD released a long-awaited unclassified version of its higher-level JADC-2 strategy. On the same day, Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks signed the still-classified implementation plan. That strategy says the purpose of JADC-2 is to sense, make sense, and act on information on future battlefields and breaks down the huge project into five lines of effort. Those are creating a DOD-wide data enterprise, human performance and professional development, technical improvements, integrating nuclear command and control, and modernizing the mission partner environment DOD uses to share data with allies. But Lieutenant General Dennis Crawl, the Joint Staff's Director for Command, Control, Communications, and Computers, says the implementation plan is the seminal document that will tell the military services and defense components how to achieve those objectives. The reason that's important The department, unfortunately, has examples over the past couple decades, at least that I'm aware, uh, where we've got up to that culmination point of defining where we want to go and those gaps, but the delivery mechanism, the how we're going to get there, who's responsible, what order do you put these in, what are the prerequisites uh, to make sure that you have an actionable plan that can be executed, and finally, those milestones, which include funding. If those are absent, what you end up with is a really neat story a grand idea, but really nothing that comes off the conveyor belt at the other end. And this is what the the iPlan actually does for us, is it takes a look very clearly at specific and prioritized plans. Uh, How are we going to accomplish the very things that we said, again, in what order? How do you measure them? How do we leverage the boards, bureaus, working groups, cells, committees that are in the building to empower them? Uh, to move these to fruition. Crawl says the plan also sets up mechanisms for DOD to guide investments in the JADC2 framework. A cross-functional team that's setting priorities for the overall project will send them to the Joint Requirements Oversight Council to validate each requirement, and DOD's Deputy Management Action Group will direct funding against those priorities. Crawl says some of the outcomes of that process will start to appear in the 2023 DOD budget proposal. We've already had placeholders in you know, even though these, this document, the I-Plan itself, was recently signed, uh, we've been in constant uh, battle rhythm events with our leadership on where we saw this forming up. Uh, so it's not as though it was just dropped in the environment and we're now t- trying to take a look at this for the first time. We had a pretty strong understanding of where these would fall out. And so, yes, we have a solid plan, I think, or at least a good a good recommendation, maybe, on, on how that'll land for 23. But the JADC2 strategy also adopts a fail-fast mentality, rather than focusing mainly on large systems that'll take years to build. Crawl says even before the implementation plan was fully developed, DOD got started on seven distinct projects aimed at achieving minimum viable products. Those are largely focused on identity and access management, cloud computing, zero trust, and other technology enablers. Crawl says one that's received particular attention over the past year is a new DevSecOps pipeline for quickly developing applications that will contribute to JADC2. We've let the services come forward, which the ones that they want to create first. And this environment on a common platform with a common developer's toolkit will create a secure application that comes directly out of the developmental environment 
environment with an authority to operate placed directly on the network with a reciprocity agreement and shared by the other services literally in minutes. And so we went out to customers. And again, if you're an industry, you would look at this and probably yawn and say, do that every day, right? Every Fortune 500 company iterates like this, you know, hundreds of API adjustments every day. We don't for a host of reasons. So that from start to finish, from developing to publishing to hosting to using, and then real-time patching to ensure that's secure, and then giving this homework between the services to let them test drive their developmental environments uh, developed by others or to grade each other's homework will start soon. Pieces of that are already underway. Meanwhile, a second leg of that use case will involve redeveloping existing applications that already have a key role in command and control, but are misbehaving for various reasons. And they crush us in budgets. They don't have APIs on the backside. I can't exchange data the way that I need to exchange data. They're locked up going in, they're locked up coming out, and they misbehave on the network. Almost impossible to manage on the network. Either chatty, unsecure, or I can't share them with others at a time that I need to share them and forget about patching. Element number two in DevSecOps is to take some of our most misbehaving applications in the environment and put them through the redevelopment gauntlet and have them reformatted into this viable uh, application that I just described so that it can behave properly on the network and we can share data. Uh, This really came to light. Uh, in some of the uh, crisis actions that we went through for things like Afghanistan and even what we're seeing now in the Russian-Ukraine conflict, looking at just simply trying to pull information out of systems that just do not behave right. Uh, We can't live this way any longer. So DevSecOps, as I've just described it, is really one of the areas that we're looking to accomplish this year, and we've got a tremendous head start. We are not starting from cold steel. We've got lots of those elements. Every service has a viable means, and we now have a bake-off of sorts as they test drive each other's products. And to be honest, I've never seen a level of cooperation between the services to get after what looks right. But moving DOD to what looks right will also require major changes in the components of the DOD workforce that are responsible for acquiring and developing IT systems, managing data, and cybersecurity. Crawl says JADC2's workforce line of effort will have its biggest impact on the IT portions of the workforce, but not exclusively. He says the department knows it needs to make big changes in how it recruits, retains, and employs talent. We've known about these problems for a long time and haven't fixed them. This is really something that we should have done five, seven, ten years ago. What the implementation plan finally does is really put that uh, accountability and measurable steps against each one of those discrete parts uh, that we've discovered. You know, the workforce is, is evolving. There's different needs. There's different skill sets. When it comes to recruitment, you know, people just don't fall out of the sky and decide I'm going to come over and join the government. It's tough to find where those jobs are. It's difficult to onboard. It's timely. There's security, it's, you know, t- uh, security concerns. I mean, we've, we make it difficult. And in many cases, maybe it's necessary because we want to be thorough, but in many cases, it's not. Uh, We've just got to get better at it. We've got to understand our market better. Uh, We've got to understand, you know, if you're part of the team, what's your developmental pathway? One of the biggest disappointments I've had is that there are certain career paths in these uh, technical fields that it's unclear how you advance, what schools you attend, uh, how you progress, what the expectations are. 
These are reasonable things for people to want to know when they join an organization of our size. So what we have is well-intentioned people who've got a laser focus on this, but now we've come together uh, in a more holistic way and we've committed to fixing this. Crawl says the implementation plan, even though it was a big lift to produce in the first place, is a work in progress and always will be. Unlike typical DoD strategy documents, a good deal of it is in electronic form and malleable, based on what the department learns about JADC2 over time. We can go in and, again, leverage what we learn on the fly and not lock ourselves into something that we can't move uh, or, or advantage. So that piece really takes a look at who's responsible. The five W's plus the H of how uh, we get there are all captured in that implementation plan. So we can point to who has the lead, who is providing support, and the most important aspect that I mentioned before are those milestones for delivery. Have we satisfied the prerequisites? Have we even identified what they are? Is this the right order of March? Uh, Do we have a good funded delivery timetable that makes sense? Do we have a testing apparatus lined up with this so we can learn very quickly? And most importantly, do we have an eye to the threat so that we don't lock ourselves into something that we would eventually deliver that will not meet success on the battlefield? That's why the implementation plan is so critical and important to what we do. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And this DOD note, be sure to join Federal News Network's 2022 DOD Cloud Exchange. Day one of the three-day webinar begins tomorrow. Hear from top officials, including Deputy CIO Danielle Metz, Air Force Chief Technology Officer Jay Bonsey, and DISA Cloud Chief Sharon Woods. They and others discuss the latest defense cloud developments, plans, and strategies. We kick off Tuesday's exchange with the Army's Cloud Management Agency Chief, Paul Puckett. Sign up now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she 
work during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.